0: Today's talk is with Jesse Piers. Jesse is the archivist in the Legacy Collection here at the Eastman Museum. Uh, Jesse is going to be telling you a little bit about uh, what George Eastman's life was like in 1918. So before we get started, I will just say um, I hope to see all of you again here uh, probably about this same time next year when Jesse talks to us about George Eastman in 1919. (laughs) Please uh, join me in welcoming Jesse Pierce. All right, thanks everybody for coming on this beautiful sunny day. I know you could be outside shivering, uh, but you're here with me instead, so we'll have a good time. Uh, Taking a look at George Eastman's life one year at a time has actually become very, very fun for me. Uh, I guess I've got steady work ahead of me until 2033. I don't know what we'll do from that point on. Uh, But let's dive in, because this is a full presentation. And I would ask that we save all the questions till the end, um, because it just helps it run smoother. So 1918, of course, the First World War was happening. I do want to point out that uh, I forgot what town that is in France, but it was not good. The outlook uh, for the war was not good for the Allies in 1918. Of course, America was late to enter the war. The war started in 1914. Uh, The uh, Woodrow Wilson administration did not want to enter World War I, they wanted to remain neutral, Uh, and the U.S. did remain neutral until April of 1917. Um, Eastman was very critical of the Woodrow Wilson uh, administration. He (laughs) thought that the U.S. should enter the war. Uh, He wanted to dive right in. So he was quite critical, but of course when the U.S. did enter the war, Eastman was very pleased. Uh, But again, I want to stress that 1918 was not a good year. We all know if you study history, that the war did end uh, in the fall of 1918. But let's pretend we don't know that, because I would kind of like this cloud to kind of settle over uh, the majority of this presentation as it did for the lives of uh, Rochesterians and Eastman and for the Rochester boys that were uh, across the the sea. Uh, But in the beginning of the year, Eastman thought that the war would last another three to 10 years. That's how bad it was in early 1918. Uh, But again let's pretend we don't know that the war ended later in the year. So not only was the war going on But a pretty serious Spanish influenza uh, epidemic was making its way across the country Uh, Rochester was not hit as hard as many other cities were um, But it was uh, pretty rampant here. Uh, Schools were closed to prevent the spread of the infection Uh, two emergency hospitals were set up George Eastman's uh, one of his best friends and his personal physician was Dr. Edward Mulligan. He was pretty much the preeminent physician in the city. Uh, Eastman was very close friends with him and Dr. Mulligan's wife, Mary. Uh, Mary was in charge of the nurses at these two emergency hospitals. Um, and like I said, it was rampant. It was just spreading everywhere, and everybody, everybody was just afraid all the time of this influenza. Uh, there was one case of the flu in George Eastman's uh, household staff, and uh, Eastman did have a hunting and kind of rustic retreat down in North Carolina. And the flu was uh, spreaded around down there as well. Uh, to make things even worse, there was a pretty serious rationing and conservation movement going on in 1918. Uh, some of the uh, rationing was you know, recommended by the government. Other parts of it uh, were mandated. And out of all the people in Rochester that could afford not to abide by the rationing, it was George Eastman and his household, but that shows his patriotism, his sense of values. Uh, He chose for him and his household to abide by the meatless Mondays and the wheatless Wednesdays and all that. Uh, He and his household did conserve a lot of sugar. Um, Due to war conditions, he did kind of let some of his household staff go during this time. Again, he could have afforded to keep them, but he thought that some of them, like his chauffeur Uh, young Charles Carpenter should be out doing war work and so he actually did let his young chauffeur Charles Carpenter go um, so that he could be uh, doing war munitions work when we think of war munitions today we think missiles and bullets and um, torpedoes that kind of thing but back then it had a broader term war munitions just meant any war supply and so Kodak Park we will get to that in a little bit was producing war munitions and so young Charles Carpenter did get a job over at Kodak Park, but Eastman chose to abide by this uh, rationing. So not only were foodstuffs rationed, but coal was as well. Uh, Harry Garfield was in charge of the Federal Fuel Administration and they were encouraging Americans to um, avoid coal and to save coal. Uh, Eastman several times in his business correspondence refers to the Garfield coal knockout, which is what he called it. George Eastman's uh, greenhouses. He actually shut them down. For a man that loved plants and, uh, as, and flowers as much as he did, to shut down his greenhouses and have a lot of plants die was a big sacrifice on his part, uh, but he did want to do his part to conserve coal. So they saved what plants they could from his greenhouses, moved them into the conservatory. Um, so not only was that felt here, but it was felt uh, at Kodak as well. As I note here, Kodak did have plenty of coal, uh, but all their departments outside of government work did have to shut down on uh, no cold days. Um, So when America entered the war in April 1917, uh, it took America a really long time to mobilize. If you study history, it's just very apparent that uh, we weren't prepared to enter the war uh, when we did after being neutral for so long. It took a long time to get an army that General Pershing could field over in Europe. It took a long time to gather supplies. So one thing that happened is uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who at the time was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, they put out a call nationwide for what they called Eyes for the Navy. They needed every pair of binoculars, uh, telescopes, field glasses, anything that people could spare for the war effort. Um, And so Eastman did send two of his really nice pairs of binoculars for the war effort. Uh, This letter, which I know you can't read very well, is just a thank you letter from Franklin Roosevelt to George Eastman. Uh, This was their first contact between the two men that I think really had a uh, liking for each other. Um, Of course, Franklin Roosevelt would go on to become uh, New York governor and then uh, US president. He did become president one year after George Eastman had died, but the two did keep in touch on occasion. And later in the 1920s, uh, they did collaborate a little bit on uh, using motion pictures to treat Uh, polio patients. Of course, Franklin Roosevelt had polio, and George Eastman's youngest of his two sisters actually died of uh, polio complications uh, when Eastman was uh, young. So that was a cause that was close to his heart. So he did donate in the 1920s pictures for uh, polio treatment at uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, request. Um, For several years, the government was um, suing Kodak, in essence. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was kind of renowned at the time for uh, just being against big business, being against companies like Kodak that had a monopoly of a certain field. Um, And this case with the government had been going on for several years. It was one of George Eastman's biggest uh, headaches. Um, But again, I think it shows Eastman's character that even with this ongoing lawsuit, When the US entered the war, finally, uh, George Eastman immediately offered Kodak's help, uh, which was kind of awkward, but again, it shows his spirit, it shows his patriotism. And uh, again, when the US entered the war, uh, George Eastman immediately offered Kodak's help, but in George Eastman's opinion, the government dilly dallied uh, for the better part of a year before finally taking Kodak up on their offer. Uh, They probably had, you know, he felt that they had prejudice against big concerns like Kodak. Uh, Maybe they were afraid to accept an offer from a so-called trust. Uh, But eventually, uh, Kodak, uh, their help was accepted, and the School of Aerial Photography uh, came into being at Kodak Park. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they were odd bedfellows, you know, the government seeking Kodak's help while they were suing Kodak. But again, uh, it shows Eastman's character that he was still willing to help out, even with that big headache going on. So uh, Eastman preferred to call it the Government School of Aerial Photography at Kodak Park. Uh, This was not for pilots. This was not for people that would be in the air taking uh, aerial reconnaissance. This was for ground men. Um, Ground men came to Rochester for about a month, four weeks of instruction at Kodak Park. Uh, Building 50 was fitted up for sleeping quarters and barracks. Uh, Here you see a picture of a lecture going on and these were just ground men learning to develop uh, enlarge print lantern slides and photos Uh, so again these are not pilots, pilots. these are ground men uh, that are making prints for uh, intelligence reasons and of course Kodak had the best teachers in the world. Rochester uh, back then uh, of course was the image capital of the world and so you had the best photographic experts here in Rochester And they made very natural, very good teachers to these young cadets who didn't know anything about photography going in. Kodak produced a, um, later produced a little souvenir booklet called Kodak Park in Wartime. It's a very, very neat booklet. And after the war's conclusion, they produced it to give uh, the ground men who had been stationed at Kodak Park uh, just as a memento, as a souvenir of their time there at the park. you know, we think of Kodak Park today as kind of dilapidated and so many buildings destroyed. But again, back then, Kodak Park was beautiful. The, the reason Kodak Park existed where it was was because Eastman wanted his factory away from the city, away from the dirt and the dust and the contamination. And it was a beautiful laid-out park. I mean, people would do their shifts. They would walk outside and enjoy the gardens and the scenery and the beautiful uh, landscaping. And so it is a very neat booklet that reminded these soldiers of their time in Rochester stationed at Kodak Park. One little neat uh, do- uh, note of history is Albert K. Chapman was one of these young cadets that came to Rochester uh, for the Aerial School of Photography. Of course, going in, he didn't know much about it, but he caught the eye of the head of the research lab, C.E. Kenneth Mees. and after the war, uh, Meese hired Albert K. Chapman. And I can't remember off the top of my head eventually what Chapman rose to, but he was one of Kodak's Uh, upper hierarchy kind of echelon executives for many, many decades in the post-Eastman years. So it's kind of neat that this uh, soldier came in and ended up rising to the top of the company. Uh, The YMCA and the Knights of Columbus collaborated on a recreation hut at Kodak Park just for their amusement so that outside of their uh, classroom time they could just unwind and relax. Eastman decided to donate his personal pool table Uh, to the recreation hut. This is actually a picture of George Eastman's original pool table uh, here at the recreation hut. That used to be, of course, in the billiard room. Later on, Eastman had it upstairs. We do have a couple photos of the pool table in the conservatory. So it kind of moved around. It kind of shifted around while it was here at the house. Uh, But that is the best picture we have of Mr. Eastman's original pool table. Uh, We have some letters in which the, uh, the Knights of Columbus get in touch with Eastman after the war and after the the School of Aerial Photography was shut down, and they say the table saw continuous and hard usage. Uh, These soldiers did not treat it all that well, and Eastman decided at that point just to donate it to the YMCA uh, Maplewood branch. Uh, But that is Mr. Eastman's original pool table. So what did Kodak do in addition to the aerial school? Um, Some of the Kodak uh, chemicals involved with making... Uh, film, such as cellulose, was found to be a very good uh, varnish for airplane wing, uh, airplane exteriors, Uh, so they made that varnish, they made gun sights, cameras, trench periscopes, uh, x-ray film. In 1912, George Eastman had established the research labs and had basically tasked them with the the future of photography, whatever that was, hopefully color uh, photography. Uh, but they were kind of diverted during World War One, just kind of helping the government uh, with whatever they needed research done on. And so they did substantial research on camouflage. Uh, the government wanted to know the best color for their ships to uh, defend against submarines. And so you see a ship today with that kind of aqua, gray, greenish kind of color. And it was this research uh, from this time period that determined that color was the best uh, to camouflage against enemy submarines. Uh, and they also did some uh, sampling and some experiments with uh fuels at the time. George Eastman was very adamant that Kodak not profiteer from these war contracts. He didn't want um, them to rake in the money helping in the government, so he made that very clear. And I did find a letter uh, where Eastman noted that 38% of Kodak Park products were going to government use. And of course, there were war contracts in almost every single uh, department Uh, Sometime in 1918, uh, what's his first name? I think it's William McAdoo, the Treasury of the Secretary, made a trip to Rochester. He did some speeches at the Chamber of Commerce and Convention Hall. He was given uh, an extensive tour of Kodak Park, and he called Kodak Park one of the most important plants the government has. Uh, So Rochester was a real powerhouse when it came to the war effort. Um, As you can imagine, a lot of Rochester boys uh, went away uh, to fight in the the U.S. armed forces. Uh, Kodak's American factories lost between 900 and 1,000 men going into service. As you can imagine, that really put strains on their internal uh, manufacturing processes. They really needed more men um, at the time. And uh, not only was it kind of run-of-the-mill kind of labor positions that ended up getting Uh, important war positions, but also um, some Kodak executives decided to leave the company for a time in order to uh, take positions. Um, William Stuber's son, Adolf Stuber, accepted a war commission, uh, as did Frank Noble. And like I said, the the research labs that were tasked with the future of photography, they were kind of sidelined and they decided to work on other things during this time. There really was a neat early uh, color process called two color Kodachromes at the time. Um, Eastman was very excited about the prospect of this new, uh, finally, you know, to him, uh, color process, but that uh, work was held up as a result of the research labs being exclusively engaged in uh, government work. So not only were important Kodak executives working uh, war positions, but good friends of George Eastman, uh, like George Bombright and Albert Eastwood, also accepted important uh, wartime positions. Taxes. Uh, Eastman complained in a lot of his letters about taxes. Despite how patriotic he was, everybody that was a Kodak shareholder was feeling a pinch because there was a rough tax on uh, shareholder profits. Uh, Eastman, in one letter, said that he guesstimated that uh, Kodak would pay over 50% of their net earnings to the U.S. government. Uh, I haven't confirmed that with annual uh, reports, but just know that uh, the upper echelon of, of Kodak executives were really concerned about this. But... They paid their taxes. Uh, A common theme in this presentation that you'll find out over the next few slides is that a lot of the materials that Kodak needed for its uh, photographic work, a lot of those materials came from Europe. And a lot of those materials were extremely hard to obtain during the First World War due to all the fighting. Uh, The first of the objects that I'll address here is optical glass. I believe that came mostly from um, Belgium. And they had a really hard time getting this optical glass. This actually made George Eastman very happy. Uh, Many uh, photographers at the time were still uh, adamant about uh, doing the old photo process of glass plate negatives. George Eastman, of course, wanted people and uh, professional photographers to embrace film. He thought it was better, Um, but it was really World War I that spelled the end of uh, glass plate photography. That glass was just too hard to get, and photographers who preferred glass... Uh, plate negatives really had no choice at this point but to go to uh, film. So even Kodak in their advertising more or less said during these years, yes we make glass plate negatives but you don't want those, you want want film. And uh, Eastman was very pleased that that uh, doomed uh, glass plate photography. So another thing that was hard to find at the time was paper. At the time George Eastman um, and Kodak did a lot of business with the general paper company over in Europe. But, uh, you know, this was also a trend at the time, what do you call it, uh, vertical integration, just trying to get all the uh, streamlined processes for all your stuff in your own house, so to speak. And so they set about to make their own paper mill. This is Kodak Park's Building 50. I believe Building 50 was demolished in 2005 or 2006. At the time, Building 50 was the largest structure at Kodak Park. In all of his letters, he, he just gushes about the new Uh, paper mill and the uh, fact that they can now make their own paper and how that freed them from uh, getting uh, paper from Europe. But it was sufficient for all their needs, and this paper mill at the time was one of the biggest in the world. So Eastman was very, very proud of building 50. And again, the the fourth floor of this new building was used as the barracks for the the soldiers. Um, So you have glass that was hard to get, you have uh, paper that's hard to get, the other thing that was hard to get during World War I from Germany, of course, was chemicals. As you can imagine, a lot of chemicals are needed uh, to create film and uh, motion picture film, and so they assembled during 1918 um, the country's first large synthetic organic chemical laboratory. Uh, George Eastman had a good friend over in Europe by the name of Joseph Thatcher Clark. Um, uh, this gentleman had two sons, one of them, Eric Thatcher Clark, would later come to work for the Eastman Theater, uh, the other son, Hans Thatcher Clark, who is pictured here, he kind of had different gifts. He was, a, he was a chemist. And so Eastman brought him on. He had a, a liking of this boy ever since he met him long ago. So Hans Thatcher Clark came over to the U.S. to head up this uh, new synthetic organic chemical laboratory. And w- another cool thing of note is that of the uh, graduate chemists to be newly employed in this new division, uh, five of them were young women. And so Kodak was a pioneer in that in that regard. So despite the war, uh, despite the fact that Kodak could have used about 500 more employees at Kodak Park, Kodak was doing well. Kodak did war uh, very well in the war years. In a lot of their advertisements for the time, you see a lot of the advertisements geared towards women and families. They wanted women to take pictures of the, the home front, of the kids at school, the kids in their activities, uh, and then send those pictures overseas to the boys stationed over in Europe. So photography was still doing very well. And uh, George Eastman remarked in one of his letters that photography is an absolute necessity these days, even in war. Um, so, of course, the end of World War One was the time of the, the rise of Bolshevism, communism, uh, socialism. George Eastman uh, knew that that threat was looming, and in order to uh, prevent it from gaining any sentiment among his employees. He was very quick to realize that Kodak needed to reshuffle their uh, labor relations. They needed to up their game, so to speak, in their relationships with their employees. And so he brought on Charles A. Eaton, who at the time was a clergyman and a speaker. He would later become a representative in Congress. Uh, Charles Eaton was brought in to help Kodak formulate a new creed. Uh, They basically had a bunch of luncheons and dinners with their department heads to kind of infuse them with this new kind of work ethic. And of course, they set up a a council on labor relations. This is a subject I'll go into more depth next year with 1919. But this was the beginnings of a radical rethinking of um, Kodak labor relations. And um, Kodak really uh, pioneered uh, a lot of neat things that we'll discuss. in the next few years, like the wage dividends and stuff. So the Red Cross, the year before 1917, Eastman was asked to head up the Red Cross uh, fundraising drive in Rochester. He was very successful at that um, in, in supporting the Red Cross. Eastman loved this particular poster. In 1918, he bought as many uh, copies of this posters as he could, and he had them cover the town. They were seen. Uh, outside on the streets. He would put them in Kodak buildings. He wanted people to support the Red Cross and their support of the war effort. Despite his enthusiasm for the Red Cross, Eastman actually became quite annoyed uh, in 1918 with the Red Cross. He thought they were dictating uh, to communities how they should raise their money, and that they were interfering with the way that Rochester was raising funds in their own way. He actually threatened to resign over this, um, though I don't think he, he did. Um, but there was a little friction between him and the Red Cross. He thought they were being a little bit bossy. Uh, these are pictures of the Red Cross bathhouse, which was created uh, near the um, the Central Railroad lines just north of downtown. Uh, at the time, as soldiers were moving throughout the company, uh, some people got together and decided to make um, some bathhouses so that when the soldiers passed through Rochester, they could get a hot shower. Um, Eastman was often... Um, uh, in newspapers, credited with having this be his idea, but he was very quick to uh, point out that he was only a figurehead. Uh, but he did have some uh, hand in the making of these temporary bath houses uh, near the near the railroad tracks. Is Joe Blackburn here? No. Uh, Joe Blackburn uh, is our resident organist here at the museum, and he came up years ago to research uh, music in George Eastman's. Uh, musical life in 1918. And as he's flipping through these letters, he's like, why is every other letter about socks and sock knitting? <laughs> it's because of these. Uh, the Red Cross Department for Sock Knitting was organized in uh, June 1917. Eastman had a hand in procuring Gearhart knitting machines that were purchased through Sibley's. And these knitting machines, has anyone seen ever seen a, a knitting machine that looks similar to this? But uh, I would love to get a physical one just to see what it looks like and maybe put it on display. Uh, but George Eastman was getting letters all the time, where did you get these knitting machines? And um, he would, of course, direct them to Sibley's and to the Gearheart Company. But these machines were loaned out, and if you were loaned a knitting machine, you were expected to uh, make 18 pairs of socks a week. Out of all the people in Rochester that embraced that task the most, it was actually firemen at their uh, different ladders that did the best. I think a fireman had a record for uh, how uh, soon he could make one. Uh, Again, Mary Mary Mulligan, her name comes up again. Not only was she helping out with the flu, uh, emergency hospitals, but she was also teaching people how to use these knitting machines. And uh, Eastman's other good friend, uh, Eleanor Eastwood, oversaw the production. This is an advertisement for the exact model of knitting machine that was so prominent at the time. And at the bottom of it, you see it says over 100,000 now in use everywhere. The Rochester, New York Red Cross averaged nearly 3,000 pair of standard Red Cross socks weekly uh, with those machines. And so Rochester really established a name for itself for volunteerism in this regard. Uh, We're even featured in the company's advertising. Uh, So going back to the fundraising uh, campaign for charities, again, the year prior, 1917, Eastman had been the figurehead, the the head of the fundraising effort for the Red Cross. The decision was made in 1918 to combine all the various charity fundraising drives uh, so that the Red Cross, other national organizations, local charities could all get money through one combined effort. They just thought it was more efficient. Commonly, this was referred to as the War Chest Movement, Technically, in Rochester, the the, um, newly created organization behind it was the Rochester Patriotic and Community Fund. Um, But Eastman knew from the prior year that there were notorious slackers in Rochester and that it was the rich who were the notorious slackers. Um, So when it came time for this war chest um, campaign, Eastman made sure to prod the slackers hard. Now remember, George Eastman was treasurer of the Kodak Company. He was not president. He was treasurer. So he knew who the big shareholders were. He knew who was getting the big paychecks. And if he thought that you could give more and that you were being stingy, he would twist your arm. He was not against arm twisting. And because of that, Rochester did really, really well in this uh, fundraising drive. But he was a plan of just telling people ahead of time what their proportion was. Um, He could be quite pushy. Here's a picture of the uh, parade float that went through downtown for the uh, the drive here, so you see, uh, YMCA. What does that say? Red Cross, Salvation Army, Jewish War Relief Fund, uh, American Library Association. These were some of the national organizations that were being supported uh, with this uh, fundraising campaign for the war chest. And that's George Eastman on the on the right there. <laughs> Can you imagine the uh, the United Way today? What if the United Way today used such language? Uh, (laughs) I guarantee you, George Eastman had a hand in these advertisements for the the, uh, war chest during these years. He wanted the slackers to be prodded hard, so he did that. So much for political correctness. Yeah, I know. Uh, So as a result of this fundraising drive, George Eastman was away from the Kodak office pretty constantly, I love that phrase, I'm gonna use that, pretty constantly. (laughs) But by the end of it, he did note that he never had more fun in working out anything in his life. He loved spending uh, hours just drumming up support for this fundraising drive. In his opinion, the campaign ended in a blaze of glory. That's because he twisted enough arms. Uh, And Rochester uh, really came out ahead of many other comparable cities. We raised nearly five million dollars. Over two million of that went to the Red Cross. Local charities got about 10% and the rest went to other national organizations, like I just noted, Um, but Eastman was very, very proud of this fundraising campaign. When the war ended, his hope uh, that the war chest scheme would become permanent uh, was realized. The war chest of 1918 became the community chest, which is today's United Way. Uh, So upstairs on the second floor of the house, if you go into the sitting room, there's a little exhibit there examining the centenary, the 100th anniversary of the uh, United Way. It all began with the war chest uh, scheme back with George Eastman in 1918. Um, In the summer of 1918, the British war mission was over in the U.S. It was a a delegation of important um, British people that came over just to kind of drum up support for the war on these shores. Uh, they invited George Eastman to Elizabeth, New Jersey in July to uh, take flight on the Handley Page bomber. I believe that's the exact uh, plane that Eastman flew in. Uh, still amazes me that those things could fly. It looks like a <laughs> shoebox with wings. Yeah. But um, Eastman called it the chance of a lifetime. He went down to Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he called it a wonderful experience. I can't be certain this was George Eastman's first time flying in a plane. I believe it is, though. I really do believe that's his first flight in that plane. But he, he loved it. And he would fly several other times during, during his lifetime. So Eastman, he would work hard, but he would also play hard. When he wanted to get away, he would get away. Uh, one of the times that he got away in 1918 was in February. He went to, uh, down to New York with his good friends the Eastwoods and Mrs. Bombright. And they, for four days, went to the theater six times. Um, so that's a, a shot of Manhattan in 1918. So just kind of picture George Eastman, kind of traipsing him around there, having fun. I wish I, could, I, wish I knew what uh, shows they saw, but he doesn't say in, uh, in any of the letters. <laughs> and of course, he would, have, he would go down to his uh, North Carolina property um, down in Halifax County, North Carolina. He called it Oak Lodge. Um, and this property had been in his possession, I believe, since 1902. Eastman typically went down to this rustic hunting retreat of his, usually three times a year. He went in January, April, and around Thanksgiving. Uh, in 1918, he only went down there twice. In January, he was too busy making the preparations for the School of Aerial uh, Photography. So on the right, you see um, his good friends, the McCombers, uh, his niece and her husband, the Drydens, uh, and then Nell Newhall, and that's Eastman on the side. And one of the little quirks of these years was. Um, Oak Lodge was always expanding. He was always uh, expanding the husbandry operations down there. And Eastman, in his correspondence, I swear 1918 is all about music, socks, and hogs. Um, (laughs) These are Tamworth hogs. As you can see, they're about twice the size of George Eastman himself. And uh, he had quite the hog raising enterprise down there. He thought it would be profitable. He thought it would be good work for his tenants down there in North Carolina. We do have a lot of, you know, awkward home movies of, of hog slaughtering and bacon making. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, w- well, part of his motivation was he wanted to increase the, the country's meat supply. So there is a patriotic motivation here to all this. But uh, yeah, he was obsessed with, with hogs and breeding hogs uh, in 1918. Um, so every summer, Eastman would go on a large camping trip out west. Um, Every once in a while, he would go to the Sierra Nevada's uh, Yosemite region. He did go to Arizona and New Mexico once, but he didn't like it all too much due to all the dust. He loved timber, he loved water, he loved pine, and so his favorite place to camp in the United States was Wyoming. Um, This was probably his fifth trip to Wyoming, I think, and he loved it. He loved the Jackson Hole region. Although he was very quick to point out that he felt around this time, around 1918, he felt the area was getting too developed. He thought that civilization was starting to encroach on wild country, and so after this 1918 trip, he only visited Wyoming one more time because it was just getting too built up. And you see him here in uh, this picture. That's Charles Newhall, George Eastman, Frank McComber, and his nephew-in-law, George Dryden. There at the bottom, you just kind of have the field hands that kind of did a lot of the grunt work on the expedition. Um, but yeah, during the final decade of his life, when Eastman wanted to get away out west, he didn't go to Wyoming anymore. During his final decade, uh, his trips were uh, in British Columbia and Alaska, because Wyoming just got too too built up for his interest. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the home front, what was going on here at the mansion and his estate. When Eastman originally moved into this house, um, in 1905, he had a neighbor immediately to the west. So, this is looking at George Eastman's front porch. And immediately to the west, that is the Lewis Ross Home. He was an important uh, Rochester figure at the time. I believe that Lewis Ross died in 1917. Uh, when the house went up for sale, Eastman was quick to buy it and demolish that mansion so that he could have an expanded estate here in the heart of the city. So again, when Eastman moved in, he had the, the Ross residence immediately to the west on the opposite side of the property on the east. This is the original layout. You see the broad uh, east vista here, the Great Lawn, and then you see the four greenhouses there um, on the side. When he demolished that house and had all that property on the west side, Eastman decided to move those greenhouses to the other side. So in 1918, everything uh, was moved over. The greenhouses, you see these little vestibules right here? That's where the four greenhouses were. And he moved them over to the other side. In addition to that, he employed uh, Claude Bragdon to make the sunken west garden. Uh, The Ross home would have been right about here. Uh, But Eastman had this beautiful garden uh, made to complement the terrace garden. Um, He also had a peony garden right here. That's the armillary sphere in the center and this area here is uh, like a laundry area where they would hang laundry. Um, And then he made a separate garden here where those greenhouses used to be on the other side of the house. Uh, This photo here was taken like right here, looking this way. Um, So you see the large greenhouse here in the center. But it was a radical transformation of his estate in 1918. A radically different layout. So just to give you an idea, I'll leave this up for a minute so you can see how the estate compares to today. Uh, so on the left is what the estate would have looked like from 1918 uh, to 1932, and uh, thanks to our spy friends at Google, uh, the right is how it looks uh, today in the same spot. So, yeah. Jesse, you pointed out the as you and I were looking yeah. at this today. You pointed out the drive. I thought that, that was really Oh hard. yeah. Yeah, today's Dryden Theater, where you see the movies, is right here. To me, it still boggles my mind that it fits in this wedge right here. But that's exactly where the Dryden is today, in this little cozy spot right there. So we are right now actually here uh, in his former barn. Uh, This was his former garage. Uh, So this would be the cafe, and this would be the gift shop area right here going into the Palm House, which uh, still exists. Supposedly, I've heard that underneath the cafe, underneath the gift shop, still exists the turnstile, so that Eastman's carriages and cars could just be pulled in, and they could twist around. I, it's now what I've heard. No, we actually, as far as the architects uh-huh. and the work that we're going to be doing for new entrants, we yeah. discovered it's not there. Oh, it's not there. The oh, yeah. good to know. Yeah, really mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. oh, That's all right. Okay. So yeah, it's a neat comparison photo there. Um, one thing that became very apparent to me is Eastman, in some ways, could juggle so much, but at the same time, he did kind of have a one-track mind. And for 1915, 1916, 1917, 17, Eastman's big project was the Rochester Dental Dispensary up on Main Street. That was his driving passion, was to see children's teeth cleaned, uh, to have it be affordable, to have um, just a... a City of Children with Clean Teeth, that was really his driving force. Once that was um, on its feet, and once the Rochester Dental Dispensary was doing well, it's like an abrupt shift. Eastman starts to concentrate on improving Rochester's musical situation. So I'm going to spend several slides uh, talking about his music um, preoccupations in 1918. Originally, when Eastman moved into this mansion, he did have uh, the original Aeolian organ Um, He loved music. He had a personal organist that would wake him up every morning at 7 o'clock with organ music, and uh, he loved his aeolian organ. Eventually, he came to the decision that he wanted to expand the organ. He wanted a fuller sound. He wanted to be down in that conservatory, having sound come at him from both directions, and so he had a second organ chamber made, um, installed, I should say, in the summer of 1918. Um, The room on the second floor that used to be his mother's bedroom. Up until a couple years ago, it was our discovery room. That's where that second organ chamber was installed. He did not want all these thousands, and literally thousands of pipes making uh, their way through the house. So he had a temporary scaffolding built outside for those workers to bring up the pipes. And here you see a a picnic of sorts for Red Cross nurses uh, in his gardens while he was away out in Wyoming. But Eastman, after 19, had a very improved organ, a very improved sound. Uh, More stops with heavy rolling cathedral tones was what he was after. When the organ was finished, he had a, a very grand, very elaborate recital with who, at the time, was probably one of the best organ players in the country, Mr. Archer Gibson. So he came to Rochester for an October 1st recital. I would love to locate a program from this recital. I've gotten in touch with the Eastman uh, School of Music Library. I've got in touch with the local history division downtown. No one has a program for this expanded organ recital. Uh, if any of you are descended from you know, prominent Rochester people, perhaps friends of George Eastman's, I would love you to look in your attic for uh, that program of October 1st, 1918. If we had it, we could actually probably reproduce that program 100 years later this fall. So uh, take a look around. But uh, one thing that I should note is Eastman was very grumpy about the condition of the expanded organ. This set off years and months of, of going back and forth with the Aeolian company. Any tiny squeak that Eastman could hear in that organ, he just could not stand it. And so um, that, the night of the concert, the uh, wind power, uh, the lack of wind power, was actually criticized. So George Eastman was quite mad at Aeolian. And uh, as Joe Blackburn was studying, there's just a lot of back and forth with Eastman and Aeolian, and he told them, I never wanted the biggest organ in the country, but a most perfect one. That's what he was after. So like I said, he, he abruptly shifted gears. His big project in ni- 1918 and beyond was he wanted Rochester to be a better musical city, and his first step ahead of the game here was to hire two quite unusual men, uh, Arthur Alexander and Arthur Hartman, Um, Alexander, who you see up top, he was going to be Eastman's general kind of music advisor and general music director here in Rochester. On the bottom, you see Alexander Hartman. He was an incredible violinist, and he was the head of a new um, quartet called the Eastman Quartet that would regularly play here uh, at the house for George Eastman's weekly musicales. And this was the first step, essentially, to improving Rochester's musical situation, which, of course, we know culminates... In the Eastman School of Music and the Eastman Theater. Uh, so those centenaries are coming up relatively soon. Uh, in 1918, Eastman purchased the DKG Institute of Musical Art. That was a local institution that was struggling at this time. Eastman bought it, presented it to the University of Rochester, and um, eventually that morphed into today's Eastman School of Music and uh, Eastman Theater. So the seeds for all this was really happening in 1918. That's the Music was the big project that was on his mind. All right, so we've come to the armistice of November 1918. Like I said, one of George Eastman's closest, closest friends, Albert Eastwood, had done some war work, I believe, for the Red Cross down in Washington, DC. Albert Eastwood leaked news uh, of the rumor of the armistice to Rochester, so Rochester had two distinct celebrations an unrestrainable, spontaneous outburst of people at the rumor of the armistice, and then four days later, uh, people taking advantage of the occasion to have a hilarious time after the actual armistice uh, announcement. So you can just imagine how thrilled the country was, how happy uh, Eastman was and Rochester was to finally know that that their boys were gonna come home, the Allies won, life could finally go back to normal, and that's just a great transition to the, the roaring 1920s. But Eastman was just jubilant at the armistice. Uh, there's just a, a, a pop in his step, and he's just very um, optimistic in regard to the future, as he said in one letter. So Kodak immediately made plans to drop war work and resume peace work in their factories. And uh, Eastman's letters at the end of the year are just a lot of fun to read. He's just very, very optimistic. Uh, One thing that I want to make note, again, Eastman was very adamant that Kodak not profiteer off their war contracts. Early on in 1918, when Eastman was in these discussions with the government, he told them initially that Kodak would do all this work at cost, plus plus 10%, without knowing what Kodak's cost was. Uh, Just to save their rear ends, Kodak estimated their cost liberally uh, early on just to protect against loss, but when it was discovered that Kodak had made a profit above that 10%. Eastman took note of it and wrote a letter to the government uh, disclosing his intention to return that money above the 10%. I'm not sure why it jumps from 82000 to $182,000. i will find that out in later years research. Uh, but the, fu- the money was finally refunded to the government in 1922 at the sum of $182,000. So again, that shows Eastman's character, that he chose to return all that money. We've got a lot of thank you letters from 1922 from government officials, I believe from the president, um, just thanking Eastman for his generosity and and integrity. So last slide that I've got is the end of the year party. Eastman could throw a great party here at the House. Uh, There are several kind of prominent parties that happened here at the mansion. Of course, the October 1905 Stag Party, uh, where the the, it was more or less a housewarming party in October 1905, Uh, the largest party ever held here was January 1st, 1914. He had uh, temporary pavilions built outside um, for dancing and dining, and had close to 900 people uh, on the premises. But out of all the parties that I've ever read about, the one that I would most like to attend, and I'm a wallflower, but I would still like to be there, was the the end-of-the-year party in 1918. Like I said, Eastman was just joyous. He was booming at the war being over. And so essentially, he brought in friends from around the country for essentially a four-day party. Uh, They just had a good time, lots of music, lots of games, lots of fun. December 29th, uh, December 30th, and then the really big one was December 31st, Uh, 1918. um, They brought in Richard Benelli, who was a very prominent, famous uh, opera singer at the time, to sing in person here. They actually put a screen on the wall of the conservatory where the Yellen Grill is now, and at the landing on the second floor, they kind of projected some war pictures, they projected some movies that Eastman had procured for this occasion. Um, they had singing at midnight. Rush Reese, who was his good friend and president of the University of Rochester, did a, a patriotic speech. And uh, the guests, including many young people, danced past 3 a.m. So, out of all the parties, you know, that four day party essentially, that's the one that I would most want to be at. But Eastman ended the year very, very optimistic um, for 1919 and beyond. So, that's all I've got. Let's, let's hear some questions. Oh, and here, if you want to, after work, you...